I've been traveling some lately and some things have been going on. Uh, I want to I say something here before I begin. This has nothing to do with what I came up here to talk about. But in my travels lately, some, God's been speaking to me about some things about um, it's hard to sum up about the experiential side of our faith, like what it means to connect to the power of God, to have experiences with God. You know, I was just sharing with my agape earlier today that <clears throat> my young Christianity was built out of a very, um, I had a lot of really incredible experiences with God from where we were born again from and how God was moving our life. And, and I had a lot of like, a lot of those really profound epiphany creating, like moving, tear jerking experiences with God in my youth. And you know, uh, maybe you don't know, but you, those things are really important, but they only go so far because they're so subjective, right? We, we, have to, we have to have something more than feelings. You have to have a reason to get up in the morning. You have to have a, a reason to study the scriptures. And there's more to our, our corporate faith life and our individual faith life than just how we feel in those moments. But I got to a place... I got to, I've been at a place lately where I feel like I'm a little too far on the other side and I feel like, I feel a little cold, I feel a little rational, I feel a little mm, stuck in my head. And, and so I've been praying a lot about this lately the last few weeks, I've been talking with my wife about it and my brothers that are close and, and uh, I just want to say it's, it's good to feel the presence of God here among us. It's good to feel the spirit inhabiting the worship of God's people. It's good to be in a place where we can all lift up our voices and expect that that's not a vain exercise, that the God of heaven hears and cares and is blessed and smiles in the worship of his people, and to feel that. And I'm grateful for it tonight. So thank you all for being here. The last line, I, I love that song, um, the, the third one we sang. The last line there, um, it's not the last line, it's the third to last line. We're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're present far too small. What's the last line there? It says, um, demands my, what's it say? My soul, my life, my all. And that is what I want to talk about tonight. <clears throat> the demands of your soul and your life and your all. What I want to talk about is living a life of meaningful conviction. That title begs a lot of questions. First off, what is conviction? Second of all, what is meaningful conviction? Uh, people have convictions about all kinds of things. But what's a meaningful convi conviction to build a Christian life on? Let's start with conviction. Uh, I don't know if you ever asked yourself, what is a conviction? We use this term a lot. We talk about convictions. 
what, what does it mean to have a conviction? How do you put parameters around that and what actually is included in that phrase and what is not? When I was a young Christian, a lot of people used to talk about the word conviction. The terms of the things, they would define it this way. They'd say the things that you're willing to die for, that's conviction and everything else is opinion. And I don't accept that definition. I don't think it's a good definition. Because there are a lot of things that are meaningful to me and important to me that I wouldn't necessarily die for. I, I hope there are some things I would die for. I, I hope I'd die for the church. I hope I'd die for the gospel. I hope I'd die for the Eucharist. I mean, there's a lot of things that I would want to give my life for. But I, I personally, I think that something like a beard, like man made it, it's a conviction to me, like that's something that should happen. But if, if the state were to knock on my door and say, we're going to kill your child if you don't shave your beard, I don't, I, I'm not ready to die for that. Like, I, it's just not, it's not that big of a thing. But that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. And so this idea that a conviction is only the things that you die for, it misses too much, right? Like there's things that are, it doesn't allow me to prioritize. It doesn't allow me to put things in order. Another definition for, for conviction, this is a dictionary def definition, is a firmly held belief or opinion. And at first blush, I'm a little more comfortable with that. But then it feels like it misses too much on the other side. Because some of the things that are motivating my life, some of the things that I do, some of the things that I really believe in, are more than opinions. They, they don't, they aren't just, uh, so I have a whole range of things, I have a whole range of things that are opinions, right? That I, I think this or I think that, but that doesn't, I have a lot of opinions that don't shape my behavior and motivate my life. I have opinions on whether, you know, like, I have opinions on orange shirts. I, I kind of like them, like, but that's not a conviction. It doesn't qualify on, even though it's an opinion. So where do we, where do we narrow this down? And I think, as I was thinking about this this morning, where I would like to pin the idea of conviction is more in the legal definition. Like when somebody is convicted in a court of law, a judgment has been made about that situation. And that, I think, gets close to the heart of what a conviction is. A conviction is a judgment that you make about a, about a situation. A judgment that you make about what is or is not the case. And that allows me, that's kind of like the sweet spot for me. Because I can have a whole range of those. I can have convictions that are judgments that I've made. They're important to me. They're about meaningful things. They, they dictate and direct my behavior and actions in the world. And, and it, it feels the right kind of like the right strength of a thing to call a conviction the judgments that we make about right and wrong, about what is and isn't. So the next, if we, if we use that as a working definition of a conviction, what are meaningful convictions? Like how, how, do we, how do we ground this idea and concept within the scriptures? Like where, where are places where, where the Bible is teaching and instructing and demonstrating and showing us what it means to have convictions? 
And so I ran through another quick list of this in my mind this morning. I, I began to think, where is conviction expressed in the Bible stories? So run through your Rolodex of child Bible stories that you grew up listening to. Think about reading through the scriptures. Where are the places where conviction is, is kind of demonstrated throughout the lives of people in the scriptures? A few that came to my mind, and maybe some more come to yours. Who told, who told Daniel to pray every day in front of his window? It's a habit enough in his life, it's a conviction enough, it motivates him enough that it's a dependable thing that his enemies can say, I know how to catch him. He does this all the time. It's a conviction in his life. It's something that he always does no matter what. And even if we make a law, he'll still do what he does because it's a conviction. And that's what I'm after in these, these stories, these examples of conviction in the Bible, is these things that move and motivate people without having to be told, because that's really what I'm after. I don't think that, like, there's a different kind of thing that's just uh, a fact of the gospel. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't call my belief in the divinity of Christ a conviction per se. It, it, I suppose that it is. I suppose that it's a motivating truth in my life, but I don't feel like it's something I've made a judgment about. I feel like it is an external fact. And that's not what I'm talking about with convictions. With convictions, I'm talking about the things that you assess a situation and you make a judgment based on however you do that, and it motivates and dictates your behavior and actions and beliefs. That's a conviction. Why, why do the, the captive Hebrew children know not to eat the king's meat? I mean, we always assume that it's because it's unclean food, but it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't actually say that. It just says they won't eat the king's meat. Maybe it's dedicated to God's. I don't, I don't know what the morality behind that decision is, but I don't have a place to square that. They just, it seems like from the text that they just knew this we don't do. This is a conviction in my life. I'm not doing that. And they're willing to endure whatever comes on the other side of that. And these men are men of conviction. They continue to demonstrate this in their life. When it comes time back around and now it's time to bow down to the idol, their conviction says, mm, no matter what, I'm not doing that. One of, the, one of the men who displays a lot of conviction in spite of his failures is David. Think of all the places where he's demonstrating conviction in his life. Why, 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 why does he know, like... It's so, it's so easy to rewrite the story where there's a competition between Saul being God's anointed and I'm God's anointed, so I have the rightful place, so why shouldn't he lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed? He has a conviction that moves and motivates his life that that's not the right way to address this situation. He could justify it. I mean, the prophet was there. The oil was on his head. He could have justified those actions if he wanted to, but a conviction guided his steps and directed his path to be obedient and faithful to his calling. 
Why, when he comes to the threshing floor, who told David when he comes to the threshing floor and the plague is stayed and the, the, the man offers, here is oxen and here is wood, you're the king, take this stuff, make your sacrifice. But he has a conviction that says, I will not sacrifice that which does not cost me. His conviction that a price is entailed in sacrifice, that something has to come from him to God in that situation. And he's faithful to it. In, um, and we start to see how, when we start to examine these, these characters and these figures in the Bible, how conviction sets a course for a life. How it... How it it interprets a situation to allow you to keep moving forward in faithfulness. That's what conviction does in these cases. Paul says at one point in Acts 24, he says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. He's operating in a way of life that he's using his conscience as a guide for his convictions. His actions are dictated by his conscience that says, at the end of the day, when I go to bed, I want to be sure that I'm void of offense to God and toward man. That requires some convictions. What you will do and what you won't do, how you operate, what you will say, what you won't say, where you will go and where you won't go. And another thing that this, this seems to demonstrate to me when I analyze it is that these genuine convictions, these convictions that have this capacity to, to preserve God's people from trouble, to help them navigate complicated situations and move forward in a faithful disposition towards God, they're self-derived. I mean, at least at the action level, they're self-derived. I mean, presumably people are teaching this is a part of their life experience, these Hebrew children that end up in the captivity. I'm guessing that they have a foundation behind them somewhere that helped them learn to make those decisions. But at the end of the day, the decision rests on the person and the conviction comes from the person. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 35. Maybe it's been a while since you've read the ins and outs and details of Jeremiah, but this is one of my favorite stories in the book. And I think we'll just read through Follow with me in Jeremiah chapter 35 and verse 1. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go unto the house of the Rechabites and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took 
Jaazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaziniah, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalem, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups. And I said unto them, drink ye wine. Stop there for a second. Let's fully take in the scene here. This is the prophet, Jeremiah. And he says to this, to this notable family, come and meet me at the temple, in the holy place, in God's place. So I'm God's man, in God's place, in this, secret, this special inner chamber connected to all these important people. This is a really big deal. Like this isn't an everyday occurrence that you sit down with the prophet in an inner chamber in the temple of God. It's not a normal situation. And he says, drink ye wine. But they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons, forever. Neither shall ye build houses, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he hath charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in. Neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to hearken to my words, saith the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed. For unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, raising early and speaking, but ye hearkened not unto me. I have sent also unto you all my servants, every man from his... Uh, the prophets rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now, every man, from his evil way, and amend your doings, and go not after other gods to serve them. And ye shall dwell on the land which I have given to you and your fathers. But ye have not inclined your ear, nor hearkened unto me. Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them. But this people hath not hearkened unto me, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them, 
because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard. And I have called unto them, but they have not answered. That's an amazing story. That's, a, that's an amazing prophetic point for God to make to, to Israel. That if, if, a, if a father can create obedience, multi-generational obedience in his sons, why would you not listen to God? Why is Jehovah not worthy the same honor and diligence and respect and obedience that Jonadab was? And it's like he's provoking Israel. He's saying, why is he greater than me? I've watched a lot of people over the years, friends, people I've loved, people I've walked with. I've watched men of conviction lose conviction. I've watched men and women without conviction develop conviction. This is something that we have to produce in ourselves. And what's meaningful conviction to produce are these things that God is telling us. I want my life to be built out of what God wants out of us. I don't want to create artificial things. I don't want to be Jonadab. I don't want to just make something up. I want God to be our father. Us as a people and me individually. I want God to be our father. And I want him to give us instructions. And those instructions that he gives to us, we take as seriously and as earnestly and as devoutly as the Rechabites did to their forefather. At least... When I read this story and when I read, when I read the Old Testament law writ large, in general terms, what's the point? What is God trying to say? Why all this? Why the no sowing of two, two seeds in a field? Why the no mixed garments? Why the unblemished lamb? Why, why, why? Why not step over a grave? Why do this? Why do that? Why is all of this stuff enumerated? What's the point? We all say, we all say as Christians, those are object lessons to teach us about God. Well, what do they teach us? At least they should teach us that God is serious about the details. That things matter. It requires some fastidiousness. It requires some study. It requires some sincerity and some seriousness. And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm afraid sometimes when I watch my life get cold and when I start to lose grip of, of, of the convictions that I've built my life around because they don't stay if you don't maintain them. They will slide out of your hands. I've watched it happen and I've felt the call. I've felt the pull. Like things, you hold on to these convictions from God. He builds them out of your life and they just start to pull or your, your muscles get tired of holding them and they start to slip and you start to let go. And then, and then years later, you're just a completely different person than you intended to be and everything's different. And from the outside, you can watch that happen and you can see people degrade. I've watched people in my life and Dean's shaking his head because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. We have watched people in the course of, of decades slip and lose a grip and lose hold. 
And somebody who you used to love and admire and respect, who used to be a pillar of the Christian community and conscientious and faithful to so many things, and then you see him years later and you're like, man, what happened to you? Where did you go? How did you get from there to there? And I, 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 I want to remind myself I want to remind myself that it's not a game that we're playing. You read that last portion of Hebrews in particular, these warnings of Hebrews, and it, just, it makes my bones cold. He talks about the people that have nothing but a certain fearful looking for of judgment. He says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, and hey, here's one of the things, uh, bonus points, this isn't even on my notes. One of the things, that, one of the things that, that helps maintain your convictions, one of the things that helps drive seriousness in your Christian life and seriousness about your convictions is to get some time where you really worship God. Because really worshiping God is a real evaluation of who and what he is. And when you get alone in your closet and you get down on your knees and you start to think about who you are in relation to who God is, and he starts to grow bigger and bigger and loom larger and larger in your conscience, in your mind, in your awareness, and you start to realize how very small of a thing I am and how very big of a thing God is, and it creates the right kind of humility and awe and fear that this is really important stuff. And the sad thing is that I think that in a lot of, um, there's these two like polar opposites. There's, there's, there's places that we all know and we've seen where there's no capacity to really like connect to the love and mercy and joy of the Christian life and that makes people callous and hard and cold and indifferent and it does all kinds of bad things. And then on the other side, there's this sugar daddy evangelical, Jesus loves you, he's here for you, nothing matters, just, just, just Jesus. And, and somewhere in between there is a real place where the real church is supposed to walk in holy fear and concern about what really matters to God. And in a capacity, because I'm serious about God, because I worship him as he is, because I'm not trying to create him in my own image, but I'm dealing with him on the terms that he presents himself to me, now I can experience his love and his grace and his mercy and his power. That's the right place. That's the place of conviction. I know for myself, and this is the other thing that I've been praying about in terms of like trying to revitalize like the power of God in my life is that 
I want to be weighed with the seriousness of our task. I want, to, I want to make my calling and election sure. I want to know who it is with whom we have to deal. I want to be conscious that the, the one that we sing to, the one that we pray to, is the one that founded the heavens and the earth. I want to be weighed with eternity again and consider that... that Get out of my day-to-day -day life. Get out of my just like normal, uh, the patterns of behavior that I set up in my life that are important for me. I want them. You know, just the day-to-day -day and the doldrums and the making money and the living in a family and making supper and cleaning the house and getting up and going to bed and getting up and going to prayer and all these things. And if you don't stop every once in a while, stop and have some real moments of worship. Stop and remember, who, who are you? And who is he? And what are we doing here? And what is eternity? And what is a soul? And what is holiness? And what does it mean to be righteous? And how do I create that out of this mud that I am? You can just, you can just keep going and get cold and become indifferent and get sloppy and all kinds of things. It's eternity that we're part of. It's, it's, it's the God. How much care and concern is that worth? And that, I think, is the point to the Old Testament, the fastidiousness of those Jews. This is why Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Take the most perspicuous, the most detailed, the most specific Hebrew you know. The one that dots every I and crosses every T. The one who, who does everything, uh, as far as you can tell, he does everything just right. His whole life is shaped, built, and, and directed around the law. And your righteousness has to exceed that. I want more out of you than what they're giving. That's the bar. That's, that's what it means to be holy to Jesus, to be righteous. So, so how, how are we doing this? How are we making convictions? You all are people, you have convictions, I can tell by looking at you. You, you people have convictions. How are you doing that? What are your convictions made out of? What are they derived from? Are you just making it up as you go along? Are you, are you just doing what people around you are doing? We just raised this way? Or do you have a set of principles and ideals that you're following that allow you to, to develop purposefully your own convictions? I ask it this way all the time. Tomorrow, follows the way is gone. Doesn't exist anymore. Burns the ground. 
who are you tomorrow when this is all gone? That's the real question, brothers and sisters. That's the real question tonight. If tomorrow you find yourself all alone and none of this is here, who are you? Because convictions are the only things that really are convictions in your life are those things like Daniel. They're the things that you do in your bedroom. They're the things that you do when nobody else knows and nobody else cares. That's conviction. I look at the Rechabites, I look at the law, I look at how, how specific these details are, and, and I wonder, okay, let's, so I always, I'm always, I always marvel at the, the end of the life of Moses, right? He, he, this guy, 40 years, he's in the wilderness by himself, 40 years he leads the children of Israel with one purpose in mind, one purpose in mind, to get this people to the promised land. From the time that the plagues happened, the time that he's, from the time of the burning bush, and he goes back into Egypt to deliver God's people until 40 years later, one object he builds his whole life around. This guy who, who sees God, this guy who, the greatest prophet born of men, this, this under Christ himself, probably the greatest figure that looms out of the biblical narrative. And the end of his life, because he strikes a rock instead of speaks to it, God says, you will not step foot on the promised land, the thing that you've devoted your entire life to. God, God repented at the request of Moses over the people. Moses caused God to repent. This is the kind of man that he is. And to this man, God says, you will not step foot on the promised land. Because I told you, Moses, I told you, and we know, we know from Hebrews that this rock was Christ. And what Moses was doing, and brothers and sisters, what we're doing, the way that we are living our lives is not about you, and it's not about me, and it's not just about my connection to God, and whether or not I'm going to heaven or hell when I die. My life, and your life, and our life, and the lifeblood of the church is to be a witness and a testimony of Christ on earth. That is why we're here, and that's what conviction is about, and that's what obedience is about, to Create a proper image and picture of the body of Christ on earth. And when you mar that, and when you mess that up, it seems like these little insignificant and small things, but the ramifications reverberate through time, and they reverberate through the witness of the church, and they harm and affect what God's trying to do in the world. And this is why convictions matter. Convictions matter for me personally because they direct my actions and they, direct, they tell me what to do when I don't know what to do. That's a vitally important thing that you have things in your life that tell you what to do when you don't know what to do. 
John D. was here a few weeks ago, right? And um, I, I used to listen to so much of his tapes when I was young. Uh, and I remember him saying, I remember him saying, the definition of the abundant life is if you knew everything that God knew, you wouldn't do anything different. That's powerful stuff, right? Like, you get to live like you have God's knowledge and you don't have anything like God's knowledge. Obedience and conviction allows you to live as if, if you knew everything that God knows, you wouldn't do anything different. That's what's available to us. That's what access we have in the grace of Christ. This is why all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, his son. Because if we follow, if we just stay in his footsteps, if we're faithfully walking where he wants us to walk, if we're building our lives out of, these, of the kind of convictions that he's calling us to, then we can live in a way that produces the same thing that he produced when he was here. It creates wholeness and fruit. It creates logos in your life. So it's a really important matter. How do we develop these things? What are those things? And how do we find them? I, um... <clears throat> I've observed, this is just Matthew's observation, so take it for what it's worth. I've observed that there are two, there are two categories of, of, of really conscientious, faithful people in the kingdom that I've encountered. <clears throat> I would say it this way. <clears throat> There's two streams that I've seen people develop lives of conviction out of. On the one hand, one of the streams that develops conviction is passion. Some people, especially when they first meet Christ, they just fall so head over heels in love with him. They just, they, they just have this impulse, this inner urge that says, I, I, I want to do what makes him happy. I'm so free. I'm so alive. And I own so much. And I've got to figure out how to please him and make him happy. This is a beautiful stream to draw convictions from. There's another stream that I think is also important. And I've seen some people build a life out of, um, hmm, I couldn't find the right word for this. Hmm. It sounded, it sounded um, too snobby, all the words that I came up with to try to describe this. Uh, um, scrupulous. Um, It's not quite right, but there's some people, there's some people who they, they derive, they, they look here and they're, it's like a, it's like a deduction. It's like, I, I look through here and I see God says this, and so how do I do that? And it's not, it's not, it's not that it's not passion, it's not, I mean, they do that because they love God, but it doesn't just come out of this, um, okay, so here's an analogy. I talk, to, I talk to Greek students sometimes. A lot of you are in Greek classes. You know, some people, 
they love, love, love TPR, TPRS. It's the best way to learn. Uh, if you don't know what I mean, storytelling, like learning language through storytelling. It's like this, this technique that, that, that's used, that you use stories and you develop vocabulary, and it's very active and interactive, and it's the way that you learn language like a child. But some people hate that. Some people are like, give me the list, tell me the rules, and I'll figure out how to do it. And that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to recreate here. Some people just look at, the, look at the scriptures and they say, A, B, and C, D, E, and F, this is how we do it. And other people, they come just out of this heart of obedience. They just want, they're just diving in. They're just head over heels and they just want to find the place to make their life make sense to God. And ideally, I think both of those streams should converge in our life. I want to be, I think to be balanced, we, should, we need to find a place where both of those are currents that we draw from. They're both wells that we drink from. But there are two methods that you can derive conviction from. Here, here's an example in my own life. I was a skinhead. We were skinheads when we were kids. We, we dressed a certain way. We did certain things. When I became a Christian, there were just certain things I didn't do. Nobody told me. Nobody, I didn't ask anybody. I didn't talk to anybody about it. There were just certain things. I have never owned a pair of blue jeans since I was a skinhead. Who told me to do that? Nobody. Why does it matter? I don't know. I just knew... I'm not going to be who I was. I do, I'm not that anymore. And my passion and my love for Christ says, this is going to affect my life, and I don't want to be that anymore. I'm not shaving my head anymore. I'm not wearing blue jeans no more. I'm not buying combat boots no more. I'm not talking to my old friends no more. Like this whole series of things just landed in my lap. I didn't, I didn't weigh them. I didn't wrestle with them. They just happened because I was converted. Whereas... I've watched other people, and they, they, they find Christ, and they're like, well, this doesn't line up with that. And if this is so, then that can't be. And that's how they make their decisions. Both of those are important skills to exercise. And what is probably the case is that you, you, you probably excel in one and are short in the other. And that's just like so many other things in your life, it's good to exercise yourself. But these are streams of, of passion and, and process that develop conviction in people's lives. I want to talk specifically about the process of developing convictions. What should we use? Like, if, we, if it's not just supposed to be arbitrary, if you're not just supposed to figure it out as you go, what are the principles involved with developing convictions? Convictions that you can maintain, convictions that you can have confidence in, convictions that you can build your life around. How do we do that? I have a list of a few things that I think we should consider. One is we should start with the attitude. <clears throat> there are two attitudes when people address convictions, when they talk about God and his expectations for his people. I don't want to... I, I don't necessarily want to th throw these people under the bus, but I'll, I'm going to say this. A lot of the young Mennonites that I've worked with in my life have an attitude of this first one. And it's that, what do I have to do to stay out of trouble with God? How, where's the line in the sand? What's required of me? It often gets expressed this way. If I do that or don't do that, will I go to hell? 
Is it necessary? How important is it? Is it required? Do I have to is the main point. That's one way that people address conviction issues. And people will develop convictions around this. I, I, there's people that say, I, I don't do that because if I did that, I would go to hell. That's, that's, the, that's the basis for their convictions in their life. Mm, I would say that's probably not very durable. There's probably not a whole lot of keeping power in that methodology. But the other way to address, to look at, to approach God about what do you want from me? What are your expectations? What should my convictions be? Where should they lie? Is to, to start with a frame of mind and a frame of reference that says, how can I please you? What would make you happy about my life? God, I love you, and I know what you've done for me, and I know that I'm not my own, and I am bought with a price, so what do you want out of me? And I'm guessing I don't even need to say what a difference those two perspectives create. And just think about what it would be like to have a family in those two different circumstances. Imagine raising children whose only interest was to make sure that they didn't get in trouble. They didn't care what I thought. They didn't care what made me happy. They didn't care what produced harmony. They didn't care about my purposes for the family. As, my, as, as their father, all they were interested in is make sure you don't make dad mad. That's their only motive. I can't imagine. It would just be a horrible home to live in. Scriptures say in a certain place, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll be your God, and you should be my people. And I know that some people read that in grief, and some people read that and they say, what is it that I can't touch? What is it that I have to come out from? Where's the line? How far away from how far out is out? And what is the delineation between out and in? And where is the line in the sand? And where do I have to stand? And where do I have to go? God, what? just tell me, where am I supposed to be so that I'm not on the wrong side of the line? And there are other of us who read this passage and we are eager and happy to throw away the trash and the filth that we've accumulated in your life because God says, if you'll just let go of that, if you'll just follow me, if you just would step away from all of that brokenness and death and sin, then I can be your God. And you can be my people. And some people read it as a warning, and some people read it as a blessing. And I suppose the rhetorical question is in the air, which are you? How do you read it? And what are those things? Hey, let's be practical. What are the things that you've come out from? 
What are the unclean things that you've walked away from? What have you let go of? What's not for you anymore? <clears throat> so our first question is attitude. The second, the second thing that I think that we should focus on is um, a love of the scriptures and, and, and purposeful study. Uh, it's hard to imagine how you can develop meaningful convictions without a, a rooting and a grounding and a framework in the scriptures themselves, because that's where we want our convictions to come from. We want to, Paul says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, that our time in the scriptures, our familiarity with the scriptures, our, 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 our understanding and knowledge of the scriptures themselves, they're like the food, they're the calories that our soul builds the muscle of conviction out of. It's the working things, it's what we put in that allows us to develop spiritual convictions that rule our life, that make sense, that, that, that they're the things that we stand on in the times when we need them. And, and, and it's important that it's not just a verse here and a verse there, but that we know how to connect the scriptures, that they, they move like they're supposed to move, they breathe like they're supposed to breathe, they, they, they flow from one to another, that there's connections and tissue in between these things, that this is connected to this, connected to this, that they're like water, that they all have to do with all, that it's a body, a body of text, a, body, a corpus, And so that when you, when you think about convictions, when you think about why do I do what I do? Why do I not do what I not, why do I not do the things that I don't do? Why do I do the things that I do? There's a frame of reference built out of the scriptures. Well, this builds on this, builds on this, builds on this, builds on this, and therefore, If we learn to develop those muscles out of the scriptures, if we learn to meditate on them, this is what David does, right? Thy law doth he meditate on day and night. They become a part of the background. They become a part of your identity. They become a part of who you are. And you start to incorporate the scriptures into your life. And, and, and when we do that, it gives the disciple the capacity to stretch past his environment, past his upbringing, past his teachers, past the things around him, past his culture, past himself, and develop something reaching, something stretching. It allows us, the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures has a capacity when we're honest with them and sincere to break through our preconceptions and our misconceptions. Do you have a list of questions in your mind from the Bible? I, I write them in some of my Bibles. 
I, I, I used to always use a, a wide margin Bible because I, I like to write notes in, my, in the center of my Bible. This one doesn't, but in my last Bible, last few, and if, if you look in my old Bibles, there's question marks with a box around them. And I come to something, and I'm like, what, what, what is that? What am I supposed to do with that? And it's intriguing, and I want to know the answers, and I want to dig in, and I want to find. And there's something like, when you, when you answer, when one of those question marks you can cross out, when you say, I understand now, that, that's a, it's such a, that'll build conviction in your life. I understand. I know what he's getting at. I get the purpose. That comes from understanding and loving the scriptures. I had a... I'll tell you a story about convictions. I had a friend, a good friend. He was being faithful to me. I, I was having trouble with my church and my life looked kind of uncertain. And, um, and an older man who cared for me we were out walking, and um, he said, Matthew, things are, I was a young man, a young family. He said, Matthew, things look kind of unstable for you right now. I said, yeah, they, they, they are. He said, well, I'm kind of worried about you. I said, yeah, I'm kind of worried about me too. And he said, um, I've watched a lot of people, and, you know, they go through a difficult situation, and I see them 10 years later, and they, their wife don't wear a head covering no more. They don't believe in any. They're not non-resistant. They're, all these changes happen in their life. And, and I just want to give you a warning. Like, don't, don't go down that road. If you, if you mean these things now, then mean them for good. And I was a little... Um, I wasn't offended. I was... I, I, had, to, I had to try not to laugh not because that that's not a possible outcome for me. I could, I could backslide. I, I, I'm not so proud to think that I'm, I'm, I could never fall away. But what, what was humorous, almost humorous about that to me is that I, I told him, I was like, I don't do any of these things because of you people. I don't do any of these things because I'm in this place. I don't do any of these things because of the church that I go to. I was doing these things before I met any of you people, and I'll be doing them long after I know you people. Because I found these things from God. These are my treasures. These are the things that in my own time, in the word, the spirit of God revealed to me and put in my lap like crowns on my head, like jewels on my fingers. These are the beautiful things that I've mined out of the scriptures with God himself. Those are convictions. Those things are durable, and they don't go away because of your environment or the people that you're with or the situation in your life. But I'll tell you what, the situations in your life and the people that you're around and the things that happen to you, they will prove, they will prove what your jewels are. They will prove what your treasures are. They will prove what matters to you. They will prove your convictions. <clears throat> Another principle I want to talk about is, so we talked about attitude, we talked about love for the scriptures. I want to talk about where, 
is your benefit of the doubt. This is kind of a funny way to approach conviction. But it's important to me because of how I learned to have convictions in my life. Let me tell you another story. When I came home from work one night, <clears throat> Erica used to read the Bible all day. I'd come home from work. We'd eat supper. This is before we had children. And we'd talk about the scriptures. This was our normal course of action. One night I came home from work. And... Um, Couple stories. One, one night I came home from work and Erica said, <laughs> she said, when I was praying today, I felt like raising my hands. I said, don't you do that. That's what the charismatics do. We're Baptist people. But these are the kind of interactions we'd have. We'd always talk about the scriptures when I came home from work. So another night I came home and, um, and she said, hey, look at this. I was like, what? And so we read 1 Corinthians together. And I said, okay. And she said, it, it looks like I should... Um, wear, wear, wear something? I don't, a head covering? What, I don't know what that means, but it looks like I should be doing something when I pray or prophesy. What is this? I, I don't know. I never, I mean, I'm sure I've read that before. I've read the whole Bible, but I don't, I've never seen anybody do that. I don't know. I don't know. Like, it can't be. Like, I, I've, ne I've known a lot of Christian women, and nobody's ever done that before. So it must mean something else, but I don't know what else it could mean. It does look like it says that. And so we began to, we began to dig in. And she's like, well, we better figure this out. And I was like, yeah, okay, we'll figure it out. So I start, I start pouring through. I, like, my grandfather's a preacher, so I'm calling every preacher I got in my phone book. I talk to grandpa. I was like, who, who do you know that I can talk to about this? I'm, I'm just a kid. Like, I don't know nothing about nothing. I'm trying to figure out, uh, like, I'm looking at uh, Strong's. What is this? I don't, I don't know, but let's see if we can start figuring out what this stuff means. And I'm just digging and digging. And what can this mean? Because I've never seen anything like this before. I don't know what it's supposed to mean. And so I just dig and I dig and I dig. And I come down where it all ends for me at that point is that the 15th verse of that chapter says, her hair is given her for a covering. And I'm like, well, why has it got to be worded that way? Does that mean her hair is for a covering or her hair is for a covering? Like it is in place of a covering. So I start looking and the OT, the word there, the, the little tiny phrase, I didn't know how common it was. I didn't know anything about it. I was just looking up Strong's. The definition of Strong's is in place of or in addition to. And I'm like, well, that's the case. Which is it? And so after a few weeks, Eric and I kept talking about it, and we said, we came to the place where we said, I am sure that it's not wrong for you to cover your head, but I'm afraid that it might be wrong for you not to. And until I'm sure, why don't you cover your head? And we committed that to the Lord, and we said, here's where we're at. We don't know how to sort this out, but we're, gonna, we're just going to err on the side. We're going to give the benefit of the doubt to being obedient. And when we did that, then things started to open up. Then things started to happen in our life. Now, you, you, you would have to see a picture, but, you know, Erica went from this very short-haired girl in a pantsuit to a woman with a head covering on. And in a dress, and all of a sudden, people start saying yes, ma'am, to her. 19 year old Erica 
start saying yes ma'am to her, they start opening doors for her, they start treating her like a woman that she's never been treated before, something starts happening in our marriage, there's something changing in the way that we're interacting with each other, there's something changing in how we, we honor and respect one another, there's something happening when, when, when we're in spiritual environments, like we just start seeing fruit after fruit after fruit after fruit from just this one step, and so we say, okay, I, I get it, that was the right choice, thank you Lord. And over the years, then, all these things begin to unfold. All this understanding begins to unfold after the obedience. Why is it that in the, so many times in the Old Testament, like when they cross, the waters will part when? When the sole of the feet of the Levites touch the water. You step, then, the, then he works. You step, and then he works. And this, this was developing a series for dealing with convictions in my life. And what I began to develop at this time in my life that served me all these years since then is that all I want to know, this became my prayer, all I want to know is what you want. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to be able to, I don't have to know it. I don't have to, I don't have to know anything else except for that you want me to do this and I'll do it. That's what I want my life to be about. All, that's all I want. I just want to know what you want me to do and I'll do it. And that became the prayer of my heart. And that led all kinds of events that transpired in the next years all the way up till today. And I developed a series of convictions out of those things that God showed me. So when we're up against a question, a controversy, a difficulty, a complexity, where does the benefit of the doubt go? What's, this, what's the priority structure for, your, for, for dealing with those complexities? I'll tell you where mine is. Between scriptures and experience, the benefit of the doubt goes to scriptures. Between sacrifice and ease, the benefit of the doubt goes to sacrifice. Between obedience and autonomy, the benefit of the doubt goes to obedience. Between community and individual, the benefit of the doubt goes to community. The benefit of the doubt. Now, it's benefit of the doubt. It's like, until I work it out, I'm going to err on this side. I'm going to lean this way. That's how I'm going to work out and resolve the conflict. I know a way to go until I have a better understanding or fuller revelation or there's some, something that needs to happen. And this even applies, this benefit of the doubt even applies to my personal relationships. The benefit of the doubt applies to the cross over comfort. So when you consider an issue, when you're wrestling and weighing, yeah, it seems like this, it seems like that, where does the benefit of the doubt go? 
Because sometimes that's what makes the decision. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what to do. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where to lie on an issue. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where you should come out on things. And this structure, this priority structure, whatever that is in your life, that will determine the outcome in those events. Okay, so we have attitude, we have love for the scriptures, we have benefit of doubt towards obedience, and we have internal and external confirmations. You know, when we talk about convictions, we have to be, we have to be mindful that some convictions are mutable and subjective. Now, here's an important concept about convictions. Just because a conviction is subjective does not mean it's unimportant. Romans 14 talks about subjective convictions. They're personal convictions. And there's a whole category of convictions that are personal. And when we encounter those things, when we talk about those things, the, the conclusion in Romans 14 is that the man who can't eat in faith is damned if he eats. Now that's not Paul's conviction. It's not his personal conviction. He says there's, there's nothing in this. It doesn't matter. There's, there's, there's nothing in the idol. But if, it's, if it hurts a man's convictions, if it hurts his, his conscience to do those things, his conviction rules, and his conviction will damn him. And it's important to take these things into consideration, that, and that's, that's why Romans 14 is saying all the things that it is. It's good, it's, it'd be good to peruse that again if you're thinking about this this week. Read through Romans 14, and look how you can hurt your brother and sister. Pay attention to what effect you have on the people around you, and how you can create damage by the things that... It, okay, so two things, two damages you can create. You can hurt yourself by the things that you allow, and you can hurt your brother by the things you allow. Both of those are potential outcomes. And both of those are things that we should be mindful and circumspect about. Then we need to have a mind and a disposition to say, the things that I allow and the things that I'm doing, they do have an effect on the people around me, and they have an effect on me. Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset you, and run with patience the race that is set before you. Looking unto Jesus, looking unto Jesus. Like, I, because my eyes are fixed here, because I'm running the race, I don't have time and space for these things. I don't have time and space for sin, and I don't have time and space for weights. And that's, what, that's the conviction of my life. The conviction of my life is to run. The conviction of my life is to focus. The conviction of my life is to be trained on this prize, like Jesus was who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's also important when we talk about convictions in this sense, these subjective convictions, to be... Um, To be mindful of how this terminology is being used, like 
deference. When you consider meats or days or, or alcohol or whatever these subjective conscience pieces are, there's potential to damage people, but who's potentially damaged? The people that deference is for are the people that who could be damaged by your liberty. So, so in the two cases, I, I talked to one brother and he says, I, I, I hate alcohol, I'd never touch it with a 10-foot pole, I'd die before it would ever touch my lips. He's not the guy that needs deference. The guy that needs deference is your friend that says, I still struggle with that, like I could drink a little too much. That's where deference is for, to prevent a stumbling block, to present, prevent that person from falling. That's where you need to be careful. That's the person that needs to be protected and insulated from your liberty. Be careful. There's one other two more points and I'll try to be brief. Another issue that we consider with convictions is origins, precedents and witness. Origins, precedents and witnesses. Where are the things coming from? Where's the precedent for it and what's the witness to these things? If I'm considering a controversy, if I'm considering an idea, if I'm considering a practice, if I'm considering something where my conviction should lie, should it be here or should it be here? Should I do this or should I not do this? Should I do that or should I do this? Where's it coming from? What's it, what's it about? What's the purpose? And where's the precedent? What have God's people been doing with this? What's, a, what's kind of a big picture of how this operates? This is another place where it's been very beneficial to talk about, like in terms of like external, um, external praxis issues, like whether that's how women and men relate to each other, what it means to, be, to, to practice biblical modesty, where, where head covering should be, how we should present ourselves to the outside world, all of these issues, you know, there's a whole category of issues within that domain, and where are they coming from, and how are they being applied, and what's happening when people take different perspectives. Have some, ha, ha, be, be thoughtful about these things. What, what happens when you do this? What happens when you do that? Where does this go? Where does this go? Where does this road lead? Where does this road lead? What's the consequence to these actions? Because they're not immaterial. The things that we do individually and corporately, they have, they have outcomes. They lead us to places. What's the witness? Of the church, where have faithful people been in this trajectory? And what's the punchline? Where does it go to? Where does it follow up? What does it produce? And I think in regards to developing convictions, another important issue that I see that, that's, that's fraught with difficulty is that <clears throat> I see, I see convictions being discussed in terms of isolated views of a particular text. Does this mean that? Well, I think this means this, and you think this means that. Is it this or is it that? And there's lots of haranguing and, and discourse and oftentimes more heat than light in those kinds of conversations. 
But what I would say is that if we want to be conscientious people, if we want to be people of conviction, what, what I think that we should do is we should have a pattern of thinking about important issues, practical issues, doctrinal issues, about the things that produce convictions in our lives. We should think about them in terms of the scope of the Bible on that subject. So sometimes that conversation gets so narrowed down to parsing out, does this word mean this or does this word mean that, like that head covering passage I was talking about. And it loses sight, it loses the forest for the trees. And what's often the best place to start, if you're wrestling with convictions in your life, if you want to examine an issue and develop your own convictions, step back and start with the big picture and say, what's the whole story about this issue? Like, where does it go from beginning to end? How much, how, how much is involved with this topic and issue? Where can I find it happening? Where, can, where do the scriptures talk about this issue? And develop, like, a direction that these things go. Like, for instance, if you want to talk about women being silent in the church, which is a hot-button issue, where exactly are the lines? What can they do? What can they not do? Well, does it, if, does it mean silence? What's silence mean? How is silence applied? Does, can she sing? Can she talk? Can she do this? Can she do that? Okay, those are, those are relevant questions, and we, should, uh, we don't want to avoid them. But first, step back. Look at the range of texts about that issue. What's the point to them? Where is this trying to go? What's the accumulation? What's the message being sent by these passages? Then once you have some sense of idea for what's the perspective that the scriptures are trying to give, now let's step into the specifics. From that vantage point of understanding where this teaching is going, what its purposes might be, what it's fulfilling and serving in the, in, in, for God and his people, now let's look at the details. And I think that that's a much cooler-headed way to approach these subjects, and it's a much more comprehensive way to address any subject. Start with some perspective, then narrow in. And study comprehensively. That allows you to, to have that conversation in light of what the terms of the discussion are and what the stakes of the discussion are. What's <clears throat> and there has to be, because of our love of the scripture, which we addressed earlier, when we do that study, when we look at the big picture, there needs to be a disposition in all of us that says at the end of the day, let God be true and every man a liar. You, me, anybody, your daddy, your bishop, your preacher, your uh, whoever. Let God be true and every man a liar. He gets the final say. And I, I, don't, I know that there's all kinds of problem with these fundamentalist approach. And if you don't agree with me, then you don't agree with God. And there's a problem with that. But there needs to be a rooted conviction that God is true. That the scriptures are right. And our job is to get in line with them, not to get them in line with us. And that can be a subtle difference that people make in their lives. I want to align myself with the scriptures. I don't want the scriptures to align with me. And it takes 
grace to do that, to do it well. That kind of study with that kind of premise, you know, we don't have to start with apologetics. When you're talking about developing convictions in your life, just take for granted the things that you can, like God is good. He knows his creation. He knows more than me. It's his world. Like those are, those are a priorities you can be, begin the discussion on your own convictions with. I believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's where I can start any conversation in analyzing the scriptures. And then I can approach and just say, I just want to figure out what you're trying to show me. And I want to obey. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot more that could be said about convictions and obviously, obviously there's a lot of details that need to be made in our own lives about what we do and what we don't and where our convictions lie and where they aren't. And I, I don't at all, in saying that they need to be individually derived, I don't at all want to diminish the influence we have on one another. In fact, uh, I, wanna, I wanna highlight the influence that we have on one another. We're, we're creating a culture together. We're creating a body of people together and we are affecting one another. And we're either building each other up or pulling each other down. And each of us have a little stake of that piece of the, of the puzzle. Each of us are contributing our own life and our own zeal and our own energy and our own perspectives into the broader church and we're creating some commonality between us about how we think and address these things together. The way we live, the way that we are, the way that we work, the things that we do. And I just want a sober call this evening to remind us how very, very important these issues are. It matters a lot. It matters a lot that we understand God's interests and purpose for us, how he wants us to be. And that we have a good way of arriving at solid conclusions about those things.